We are in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then His disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me that all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out on the town and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For for here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Just by way of reminder, the leadership, I need to meet you about 15 minutes following the morning worship hour this morning in my office, if you'll take note of that. And uh, at the close of the service, it's been my custom to stay up front rather than go to the back. And today you'll be glad that I stayed up front. I I caught another one of those bugs. And if you don't want to get close to it, just stay back this morning. But uh, we're going to attempt to go as long as we can as my voice will give me strength this morning. But let's pray together as we open the scripture. Father, I pray you'll help us this morning to, uh, to see what your son taught about worship here in this text. Help us, Lord, to know what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. If there's anything that Palm Sunday says to us, it says that we need help concerning worship. It was, it was those who lined the way of Jesus a week before he was crucified who hailed him and 
cried out to him in joy. And then the same a week later cried, crucify him. They didn't understand worship. They didn't understand what they were doing. And so I think it's important for us that we do understand what worship is. And so this morning, what I want to do is to go back into this text that we looked at last week, the latter part of it. Look at the account of the Samaritan woman. If you remember last week, as we begin back into this text concerning specifically what Jesus said about worship, you'll remember how we unpacked it last week and how we came to verse 26. I want to take you there again this morning. I hope this particular thought stayed with you this week. Um, as, as you look at what Jesus said to this woman and how he revealed himself to this woman, um, I hope it stirs something in your heart. You see, this, this text and the way that Jesus revealed himself to the Samaritan woman is as clear as any other text in Scripture. There were times when Jesus some, somewhat clouded his revelation to the Jews because he knew that if he declared this kind of a statement to them, they would take it to the wrong place. They were looking for a Savior, but they didn't understand what that Savior entailed. And they would have wanted a military king. And so there were times when Jesus had to declare himself in, in a more veiled way. He couldn't come right out fully and declare what he declared to the Samaritan woman. But here in this text, he just lays it out there. She comes to him and she really, I think in verse 25, as we said last week, just said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. And really, I think what she was saying in that text is, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? The one who has been promised will come. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. I, I don't think we can underestimate what impact that had on her life. As she realized this was the Messiah. This was her Messiah. We know that because when the disciples came back, she left her water and she went back to the village Back to the place where she had been scorned. Back to the place where her life had caused her to draw away from others. And she just laid out, come see the man who told me all about myself. Who knew all about me. And evidently they responded. They came and when they saw, they declared, we see the Savior of the world. This is what Worship is centered in this kind of an understanding, this kind of seeing. Worship that doesn't center in what this woman saw is not true worship. Worship flows out of an understanding that Jesus is not only Savior of the world, but He's my Savior. And that's what I think Jesus tells her here and what we want to look at this morning we need to look at the context of, of the story a little farther. And then we're going to look at specifically, I think, what Jesus was declaring to her. Um, if you remember last week, the, the woman was, was laid bare. I mean, she was just laid bare by Jesus. He did it carefully and gently, and we talked about that. 
we, Jesus certainly um, was appropriating, I think, in this sense, the, the Holy Spirit in a way that he had understanding of this woman's life. And, and he gently probed into her life and began to unpack it. And what happened in that is her life was laid bare. I mean, it, if you will, I mean, she was, she was just naked in, her, in the sense of her life here. Just like Eve and Adam in the garden when they sinned, all of a sudden they saw their nakedness. And, and what that meant is they, they saw their vulnerability. And here all of a sudden this woman before Jesus is exposed. Her life is exposed. Her sin is exposed. And when you feel that kind of vulnerability, you inherently, you inherently look for cover. You look for a way to cover it. You look for something to do to deal with it. That's what you must see, I think, in this passage. When Jesus began to probe her and began to find out and talk about her life and tell her about her life and the multitude of relationships that, that she had gone through. And what I want us to see is the nakedness now. The, the thing that she does and what she turns to for cover. It's interesting in this passage. Look at, look at where it's at. It's where we pick up the passage. And she says, I perceive that you are a prophet. Look where she ran to. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, I, I don't necessarily think she was trying to change the subject as much as she was looking for cover. And she was looking for a place to hide because she knew her sin was laid bare. Instinctively, that's where we all have to come to, I think, in order for us to really understand Christianity. Um, but the tendency of us, when that starts to happen in our lives, is we tend to run for cover in the wrong places. I liken it in my own life as I... In my early teens, I'm not exactly sure when all of this started to stir in my life, but there started to stir in my life um, a fear of death, uh, a fear of what was going to happen because I knew I was a sinner and I knew that I was naked, if you will. And I didn't have any place to hide for comfort. I didn't have any place to go for comfort. And so I began to try to make up some things to give me comfort. One of the things that I made up is exactly what this woman did. She ran to religion. Because instinctively when we get laid bare, we think religion is the answer. She began to talk about worship. I remember the place that I ran is a promise that I made to God about going to church at Easter time. Lord, I'll go at Easter. And one of the things, though I was incorrect in it, I thought, I thought baptism would be the fix. I hadn't been baptized. I've told you before, I used, to, I used to be angry at my parents that I didn't grow up Catholic, so I would have been baptized as a child, as a baby, and therefore would have my ticket to heaven. And so I remember being angry growing up in a Catholic neighborhood and have all the Catholic kids who went to Mass and we didn't go anywhere. And so I, I instinctively thought, I'll just have to get baptized, but, 
But it's scary to go to the church. It's scary to go. So I'll go when most people go, Easter, and I'll go for a while and then I'll get baptized and everything will be okay. I was, I was running to that for comfort. When fear would rise up in my heart, I would go back to the promise and say, God, when Easter comes, because Easter was a ways off, it put it off a little bit, but it gave me some semblance of comfort. I think that's what she was running for. She was running for cover. She was running for comfort. And she began to talk about worship. But what she didn't expect is how Jesus answered her. And what I didn't expect was where my running for religious cover would take me. You see, religion won't do it long term. You know, it might soothe it for a while. It might be a place to run to for a time. But it will not take the ache away from your soul. And so Jesus knows that. And here's what he says to her in verse 21. He said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. I think Jesus here knows her heart. He knows she's running for cover. He knows she feels vulnerable and naked. And he comes to her with the answer of how she can be covered, how her nakedness can be covered. It's interesting, Adam and Eve, what did they do in the garden? They felt their nakedness after they'd sinned. They knew they were naked. Before that, they didn't know it. And what it says is that they made clothes for themselves to cover themselves, which I think is a picture of what Jesus is going to say to this woman. The the symbolism in the garden was that they needed a covering. They needed a covering. And interesting that the covering they took had to do blood sacrifice, the skins of animals in the garden. And that was pointing us now to Christ, pointing us to the one who truly can cover us. Religion won't do it, but Christ will. And what I want to do now is to look at Jesus' answer and look at what he responded to her with, to move her away from looking to the false things for covering and protection and safety back to him. The first thing that I think we see here in this text about worship is that the Father is looking for a band of worshipers. The Father is looking and seeking a band of worshipers. Look look at the text down in verse, um, the latter part of verse 23. It says, For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God literally is is gathering a people who won't look to religion but will look to him look to him to be the provision and to be the provider the father is looking to gather in a band of worshipers um, one person said that missions exist in other words going to the nations exists because worship doesn't The reason we're called to go to the nations is because the Father is seeking a band of worshipers. To be a Christian 
is to be a worshiper of the Father. That's really what Christianity is about, coming to worship Him and knowing the basis of where that worship flows out of. And that flows out of what His Son has done for us. That He became our wrath bearer, as we've sung about this morning. That He was lifted up, that all who look to Him will be saved. The Father is looking for worshipers who are worshiping Him in the context of what He's done for them. There was a a series that came out a while back, and many of you probably viewed that series. It was called Band of Brothers. My children gave me that DVD set for Father's Day or a birthday at one point, and I, I was intrigued as I began to watch that story of Easy Company, World War II paratroopers, the 101st Airborne Division. And they were led by an officer named uh, Winters. And it was the story of how those men went through World War II and the experiences they had, the true stories. And if you saw it, you know there were flashbacks back to their later life as they were giving commentary and telling about the experiences that they had. They had a a oneness together around what they'd experienced. They became a band of brothers. And what, what they were centered in was the experiences that they had during World War II in a horrific war that they fought together under horrific circumstances and some of the most difficult that any in World War II experienced. Well, the same is what, when we talk about a band, is what God is looking for. He's looking for a band of worshipers. And they are held together not by their experiences of World War II, but this band of worshipers is held together and has a commonality around what the Father has done to save a people. And in saving a people, He raises up worshipers who worship Him and have Him at the center of their lives. So the first thing that I think he turns to her and he says, it's not about a place. It's not about finding religion to cover you. It's about me gathering a band of worshipers, the father gathering a band of worshipers. The second thing that I think it says here is that true worship is fueled by truth. It's interesting how Jesus responds to her. Um, he he comes to her. Now, she she was a Samaritan. They they were kind of outcasts in Jewish eyes. They had been part of the split-off kingdom of Israel that had intermarried. And so they weren't, weren't very well liked among the, the remnant of Jews of the southern kingdom. But, but in light of that, Jesus makes a statement to her that is interesting. He says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. Um, Jesus didn't stay away from her because she was a Samaritan. In fact, last week we talked about he, he pushed through his weariness. He engaged her. He loved her. He was no respecter of persons. He treated her the same as he treated Nicodemus. That's interesting, the contrast in John. He speaks to Nicodemus of the religious elite the same way that he speaks to a Samaritan woman. He engages them both. He was no respecter of person. He didn't stay away because she was a Samaritan, but he also didn't back away from the fact that she was worshiping the wrong way. 
and the wrong thing and the wrong God. He says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For our salvation is from the Jews. Now Jesus said, true worship is to worship in spirit and in truth. This is the truth part. This is important for you to hear this morning. Salvation is from the Jews. The Savior that we talked about on the screen this morning, the Savior of the world, was a Jew. The Savior of the world came from the house and lineage of David. Jesus didn't back away from that. We live in a world today that backs away from truth. We live in a world today that is so afraid of declaring that there is a truth. Jesus didn't do that. Christianity affirms there is a truth to believe. And that this Savior, Jesus Christ, came from the Jews. Now, if you go back into the Old Testament, God decided to choose a people. And the Scripture says He didn't choose them because they were more righteous than those around them. He just chose the Jewish nation. And what, when He chose the Jewish nation, He chose to bring the blessings to all of the nations through that nation. He gave promises to that nation. And He gave promises to Abraham. And He said, Your offspring will bless the nations. And the offspring that He was speaking of was a singular offspring, Christ. And so when Jesus says, Salvation is from the Jews... He's talking about truth. This Jesus was born and lived and died in history. It's not some kind of ambivalent figure out there that floats around that you're called to believe in. You can research it. You can go back into the Old Testament. And as you go back into the Old Testament, you begin to see that all of the Old Testament... And the New Testament is one story. The Old Testament again and again and again is pointing to Christ. The Bible is one story about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who came to be the Savior of the world. Much of worship today is just kind of willy-nilly, floaty-around kind of stuff. That's never the way worship should be. Worship is fueled by truth. And the deepest worship is fueled by deep truth. And so if you want to be a worshiper that has passionate worship, you need to fuel that passion with truth. You need to root it in truth. That's what Jesus was saying. You worship somebody you don't know. We worship. We worship a historical revelation. I hope that you more and more want to want to know this revelation, want to know this Christ. I say to you this morning, Christianity is about a savior. I've said often to you there are not there are not three atoms in Christianity. There's only two atoms. The first atom in the garden, the first atom who sinned 
and failed and felt naked and ran for cover. And God provided cover. He killed animals and covered them as a symbol that God was going to give them and give all people who would look to Him a covering, a place of protection. Right back in the beginning is a picture of Christ, even in the garden. And that Christ is the second Adam. The second Adam comes. The first Adam sinned. The second Adam lived without sin, that he might be the Savior of the world. He was confirmed in righteousness. And the thing I say is there's not a third Adam. There's no place in Scripture, no place in this book that it talks about a third Adam. The world would want to say there are many roads to to heaven. They can say that. They can believe that. They have every right to do that. And the proper proper context of tolerism is that we we don't bring a gun to their head and say, recant. That's what tolerism is in its right understanding, in its right definition. We don't coerce them to believe that there's only one way to heaven. We don't coerce them by force. We don't do that. But neither does Christianity teach that. Christianity does not teach there is a third Adam, that there's another road to heaven. What Christianity teaches is Christ. And that's why Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. That's what the Scripture teaches. That's what the Revelation gives us. And what we have to decide if we're going to call ourselves Christian is that where we rest. Because worship, that worship, is rooted in truth. True worship is fueled. By truth, And the more you come to see that, the more you come to see that Jesus is not only the Savior of the world, but He's your Savior, you will find worship beginning to be a spontaneous thing out of your heart. The more you come to rest in Christ and see that He was your sin-bearer and your wrath-bearer and the Savior, worship is fueled. That's what it means to worship in truth, and it flows to worshiping in spirit. The next thing that it talks about is he worships in spirit, a true worshiper. And what we find in Christianity and what I think Jesus was teaching us is all of life is worship. All of life is worship. Worship is not about a place. Worship is not religion in itself. But worship, all of life is worship. The New Testament context of worship is all of our life is the worship of this God and His revelation in Jesus Christ. We worship not on Sunday morning. This is corporate worship, yes. But we also worship on Monday morning and Tuesday morning. And all of life is, is worship of this God, of this truth, centering ourselves around it. We worship in spirit and in truth. And truth always leads us. Truth always leads us. And worship is a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of the place. I hope this morning that you understand that. You see, the reason it's spirit is another thing that Jesus taught. And we looked at it earlier. Um, he, he talks about the fact that you can destroy this temple. Remember when he came into the temple and he, 
He, he overturned the tables. One of the things Jesus said, um, destroy this temple and it will be raised in three days. He was talking about himself. He was applying the fact that he is now the temple. Jesus is the temple. We don't have to go to a place to worship, although it's certainly good to worship corporately, gather, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, some are in the matter of God. God wants us to worship corporately together with other people. But it's not about the place. It's about the person. It's about Jesus now being the true temple. And wherever Jesus is, that's where worship takes place, whether it's individual or whether it's corporate, spirit and in truth. And this morning, I hope that we understand that. And it all goes back now to where we began this morning. Turn with me or look with me to the very end of what we just looked at this morning. It's where we began and it's where we're going to end. I want to say it again to you. In verse 39, it says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that is indeed the Savior of the world. There's nothing in my heart that resonates stronger than me wanting to say to you, don't just see Jesus as the Savior of the world. See Him as your Savior. And worship in that context. If you don't see Him as your Savior, if you don't know what it is to rest in Christ, that He is your wrath-bearer and your sin-bearer, if you don't know what it is to run quickly to Him when you sin, because He is your Savior and you don't need to help Him with that. You're not going to understand what He means when He says worship in spirit and in truth. Because that is the truth. You can do that. And you can know that. And you will not worship as you ought until it's the daily experience of your life. Resting in Christ. Knowing He now is your Savior. Matthew's going to come and we're just simply going to sing again that song. It's not very long, but it's profound. It's the truth. And I pray before this series is over that you know what it is to rest in what you're singing. That it's part of your life and out of it flows worship in spirit and in truth. Let's stand together as we sing.
I told you my story. I was naked. And I thought I could run to the church and get baptized and find cover. I'm grateful God never let me do that before He showed me the glory of what we just sang. I'm grateful I didn't go try to find cover where there was no cover. If you're vulnerable today, don't overcomplicate it. That's the cover. That's the cover. God will provide a covering just like He provided a covering for Adam and Eve in the garden. He will cover you with His righteousness. He will give you His perfection. He accomplished it and He gives it to all who look to Him. Let's pray. Lord, my only hope for cover is Your righteousness is what you accomplished for me. And Lord, I pray that if there's someone here today who's looking for cover, they won't look in the wrong places. They won't be fooled. But they will run to Christ and be covered by His righteousness. Lord, we just pray that you'll help us to rest in Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. We look forward to worshiping on Easter together. You're dismissed this morning.